0: Stilly Charalambus is surprisingly a chartered accountant, self-proclaimed stubborn man, and the co-founder and CEO of one of the most important businesses in South Africa right now. Being stubborn has certainly served Stilly well over the 13 years that he has spent building his media empire. His business, The Daily Maverick, is a shining light in the political, economic, and media darkness of South Africa. The first eight years of this venture-backed startup were incredibly difficult. And listening to Stilly tell his story, you can feel his pain. But something changed and an expensive $6,400 decision proved to be a pivotal moment for the future of his life and his business. I'm Nick Haralambas. I won't keep you waiting any longer, but remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome to the first episode of It's Not Over. With me is Stilly Charadambas. Yes, that is exceptionally close to Ambus, And yes, I understand we both have incredible beards. So if you're listening to this and not watching it, go over to my YouTube channel and get an idea of that. Stilly, welcome and thanks for joining me.
1: Glad to be here, Nick. Thanks for the opportunity to chat about these difficult, uh, gut-wrenching moments. And then hopefully we have a, a good story to tell on the other side of that as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I believe you do. And full disclosure, we're going to be talking about the Daily Maverick. Um, and I am a Daily Maverick insider, and I have been for a while. I also create a column that runs as a newsletter with the Daily Maverick. So I'm a fan of everything you do. The kind of company, business, and media that you produce speaks to my journalistic heart and background. So I'm excited to talk to you about this because I know that you've had a hell of a trip over the last eight ish years building this business. So why don't we start with you laying the groundwork? What is the Daily Maverick? Why is it important in South Africa? And why did you start it?
1: Yeah, so um, I got involved, um, I think after I lost a bet uh, with a friend. <laughs> I was introduced to the to the original founder, Branko Brickich, uh crazy, uh, eccentric, uh, genius, uh, publisher, editor, uh, who moved out to South Africa from uh, Yugoslavia? This was the only place that would give him a visa. Came out to him in the 90s and, and uh, he continued his publishing career that he started out uh, back, back in his homeland. And that uh, journey uh, into magazines and magazine publishing uh, eventually got him to start Maverick Magazine, which was the precursor, the cult uh, originator of the Maverick brand. And uh, when that stopped publishing, uh, he knew that he wanted to go into the digital space, that's where digital publishing was going to go. This was circa 2008, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, end of the world uh, financial crisis happening. And um, in 2009, he was getting ready to launch Daily Maverick, the digital reincarnation of uh, th- this uh, feature-driven journalistic uh, effort. And I was introduced to him by uh, an investor, one of the, the, the seed funder for Daily Maverick was a close friend of mine from university days. We'd worked on other projects together. And uh, I said to him, hey, what else you got going on? This thing we're working on stalled. And he said, well, give me his journals and editors some money to get this thing going. Do you want to chat to them? Because they need someone with a bit of business experience to kind of help them raise some more funding and, and get, get things going. I knew very little about... What good journalism constituted, what media business uh, involved, and um, it just sounded less terrible than my other options. So I said, "Let's no, no, let's have a go. Let's see where this the goes." The birth
0: of every startup, right? It's less terrible or shit than the thing I'm currently doing.
1: Exactly, and <laughs> um, you know. But I, I was I was uh, taken by the passion, and uh, you know that Branko had. Um, you know, he's Serbian. I'm Cypriot uh, origin. We're both expats in this country. And, uh, you know, uh, similar work ethic and just also a stick it to the man kind of view uh, of the world, uh, which I quite appreciated. And um, this blank slate of like, well, we're going to build this thing and we're going uh, to change everything about, you know, about news publishing and, and what it means be news publishing. And I was like, yeah, just nodding my head, trying not to sound stupid. And, uh, and that was the beginning of it. And it was, um, it was, this was 2009 before sort of. You know, Facebook became a big competitor to the news publishing industry um, when there was excitement about the potential of traditional ad spend in print and uh, and radio and TV going to digital. And uh, you know, we thought uh, well, we were right in that it was going to shift to digital, but we were wrong that it was going to come to news publishers. And so that was the fire in which we were born in. And at the same time, there were. You know, some other uh, uh, fires brewing or mountains that we were going to have to climb uh, that were you know, sort of jockeying for position of the, of the biggest threat um, you know, beyond just the existing competitor set. But you know, uh, at the time, uh, people who are unfamiliar with the politics of South Africa um, may not know that someone by the name of President Jacob Zuma came into power uh, in two thousand and nine as well and and kicked off the beginning of a decade of uh kleptocracy and corruption that has brought the country to its knees. And so while that was picking up steam, uh Google and Facebook were also making huge inroads into into advertising, uh digital advertising and becoming you know, Google was already the biggest player, but Facebook was was coming on board. And so these were the this was the fire pits that we were born into at that time, thinking we were going to be build a viable business off the back of that.
0: Yeah, I think with my very limited journalism and media experience, it's important, the point that you're making, and it's relevant because you don't start a media company to be wealthy in 2009. It's not really why you did it, right? You did it in South Africa, and the Daily Maverick is an investigative, journalistic, objective, and independent voice, keeping the country's politicians and private sector in check. That's kind of why you started this. The rest is just peripheral clutter where you're trying to keep your head above water, right?
1: Yeah, and, and it's, it's hard enough starting a business that <laughs> needs to try and try and make a profit. I mean, you've been involved in, in many businesses and many startups. It is just incredibly hard to, to, to be one of those, and that small percentage of businesses that make it to, to year three, let alone year 10. And uh, and then to do it with the with the additional weight of having to serve society's needs before your own, right before profit, uh, you know, we can't even think of turning a profit, but before you take into account uh, the needs of society and what you have to deliver journalistically to to achieve that.
0: Yeah, brutal. So, tell me how you, as a business, earned money in the beginning. Uh, tell me how it went in the beginning, like. You said you had a seed investor, you mentioned introduced you to Bronco. So was it plain sailing and then there was an inflection point where you were like, holy shit, this is going bad. Um, I think off the air before we started recording, you were talking about the slow boiling of things being difficult and troubled.
1: Um, so the answer to the question is how did we make money was with difficulty, right? Uh <laughs> you know, it was an ad model, the 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 business plan was based on an ad model, uh, ad more completely. Uh, Free to air. So keeping the journalism, this high quality journalism, the value proposition was making long form feature length quality journalism available on the Internet, where in the early days, a lot of the publishers were keeping the good stuff for print the where all be, uh, the revenue was still uh, coming from and all the profits were there. And so we wanted to turn that on its head and, and, and make this thing available for free. We always knew that and, and that was always going to be core to, um, core to our mission was, was making it available to all South Africans.
0: I just want to pause here. And uh, I think it's important to point out that in South Africa, print income was on the incline for like a period of 10 years after the rest of the world was starting to decline. We were still a very well-read print country for a long time. So that's why you speak of print like in 2009 as a viable thing to launch, like a print platform.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and and we're always kind of being a little bit behind the curve. And, and, and uh, what we also have is... Um, the, you know, and media and news industries around the world all experienced this, which is um, disruption was pretty much kept at bay for such a long time that when it eventually came through, it came through like a tsunami. For the entire industry around the world in the space of a decade. Um, But in South Africa, these oligopolies um, were basically controlling, you know, the print sector, the the radio sector, and the television sector, either through licenses being handed out by government or just the barriers to entry by virtue of uh, being able to to run and invest in a a print press. So, Mm. um, you know, that was still the case. And, um, you know, we had the existing... You know, players who were wishing our demise um, and that were, you know, very quickly overshadowed by political players and other, you know, uh, other corrupt people and politicians who joined that what is now a very long queue of people are wishing our demise.
0: That's great. Okay. So, so an ad-based model that kind of sustained you for a while, you had venture capital that was plowing money into this entity too. And I mean, I'm interested in this one, like venture capital for a newspaper that feels kind of crazy.
1: Yeah. So, you, you know, the, the route is, uh, you start with friends, fools, and family yeah. and, and, and that was pretty much, you know, we would, we would, uh, go through that, that Rolodex of friends and fools and family who would, who would we could convince to buy into the mission. Now, obviously, at the, very quickly, um, we were getting traction with uh, readers. People were appreciating the quality of the journalism. Numbers were growing. So we, we, were, we were bringing uh, readers and audiences to the table and showing this great uh, growth, great engagement, even great performance on, on, our, on our ad side of things um but we just weren't able to generate enough revenue on the advertising so it was this continuous state of fundraising slash greek bailout uh type operations for pretty much you know the, for the first 8 years. yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the for the first sort of 8 years it was bashing our head against a wall um and then you know recognizing that we needed to sort of uh restructure the model a little bit we uh Brought in a, a non-profit element uh, into our structure, our corporate structure, and that allowed us to access grant funding uh, a little bit easier, although it took us years to get our first uh, first grant. Um, and then we sort of panel-beated this sort of hybrid non-profit, for-profit structure into place um, and, and sort of just, you know, uh, so thrived is the word that we use because we were surviving and we were just making it to the next, you know, sort of payroll counting down you know, from the delivery of the this payroll down, you know, getting pregnant with the next one, when's the next delivery date? Um, and then, you know, just by hook or by crook through grant funding, through borrowing, through lending, through, you know, credit card debts, through, and then eventually running out of friends, fools and family. Um, and then, you know, trying to integrate ourselves into, a, I guess, maybe a, a wealthier uh, group of friends, fools and family beyond that, because the cause was starting to become uh, apparent to the rest of the country that the work that we were doing was so important that it needed that it needed support. And um, yeah, we were just perennially in a state of broad showing slash begging.
0: I mean, there really is so many things uh, that you said there that are worth unpacking. But the first is, I mean, eight years is a, a damn long time to struggle at all. Why, like, why carry on? I mean, eight years is more than most people will do basically anything, why would you carry on through this pain?
1: You know, there's uh, a couple of traits that uh, entrepreneurs and, and founders need to have. Some people romantically call it resilience. Uh, we call it just it's outright stubbornness. Uh, Branco and I to extremely <laughs> stubborn meals, um, and 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 you know we believed in it, and we not only believed in uh, we believed in the vision, like the vision and the mission were just core to everything, and. Um, we just knew it. Uh, we might not have been able to articulate why, but at the time, the news industry, the journalism sector in South Africa, was on a rapid decline. Um, we've lost half the permanently employed workforce in journalism in this country in the last decade.
0: Um, wow, and that is staggering. Is that that's that's true?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, either wow. through either through people uh, leaving to go into corporate communications for more money and less risk, or just, just outright uh, job
0: cuts. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm trained interested. as a journalist and I left to make more money. Yeah. So, um, there you go. And,
1: and, and, and less risk, uh, physical, yeah. em, uh, emotional, and, and just the risk levels just through the roof. And so we, we've seen this and, and a massive juniorization of, of newsrooms happened at the same time. So, all of this was combining along with the the political decline of the country and what was happening that kind of meant every day the the work that we were doing was just so important and needed us to keep going
0: and uh, yeah i'm glad you mentioned it it's what i thought you were going to say is that you and Bronco stuck with it for eight years because you believed in the mission and the vision so i'm interested in the practical actual mission and vision Um, has that changed over the last 13 years at all
1: you know it it, it hasn't changed but in the last couple of years we've done a lot of work to uh, better define it so that we're now sharing it with the entire organization as we've grown and as we've got people working remotely and new divisions springing up um, and we're not able to kind of be in the same room with all our with all our people all the time and where that you know comes across and just by the, the things you do and the things you say and so we've had to do a lot of work around actually defining it, and so we define our vision as um, as w- we want to create the journalism that helps people know more and know better. Um, and and we, you know the soundbite is you know know more, know better. And every piece of journalism we create needs to be able to live up to that. You know, do people having spent time with this journalism do they know more and do they know better? Um, and doesn't talk about giving them a, a particular point of view. Doesn't talk about you know pushing them one way or the other it might be an opposing point of view that can still help people know more and know better because they know what I guess the other side is thinking. And, and then the mission is how do we achieve that? And, and, mm-hmm. and in the last couple of years, as, as we've seen um, the strategies and the tactics of politicians and influencers trying to influence political outcomes um, and fake news and uh, mis- and disinformation, uh, it became clear that the way that we were going to best achieve this uh, vision was by, you know, w- we adopted defend truth as as the mission of the organisation, and that's how we were going to help people know more and know better and and get to that that place of uh, uh, of achieving that um, in the journalism that we that we create.
0: I think jumping back to your statements of eight years of struggle, and then there seems to be some kind of inflection point, what I want to talk about is that eight years of struggle. How does that influence and affect your day-to-day life, like your partner, your kids, your relationships, your team's salaries? Like, What was the visceral feeling of struggling through a startup uh, while defending the truth?
1: Um, it, it is without doubt the 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 hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Um, um, there were periods um, where we didn't pay ourselves for six months, and and not that we were paying ourselves a lot anyway. Um, uh, there were times where I had to keep that information from my wife. Uh, there were times uh, <laughs> yeah, and, there. And, and 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 the worst the worst part like there was this one time where we had to, I had to Decide between paying my staff or paying my kids school fees. And, um, and, and, and I knew that this, I still had a little bit of grace left with the school. So I went with the staff and, um, but that's, you know, those were the kinds of decisions that you, that you have to make, you know, it's like people's livelihood versus your, you know, your kid's education. Like there was those kinds of decisions. And, and, uh, and it just, it just, uh, there was a lot of resentment. There was a lot of resentment. Why does something that is supposed to be doing such good, why is it so hard to for it to work? So there was a lot of resentment to the world. There was a lot of resentment um, just to the industry, to existing, to corporate South Africa a lot who wouldn't support us and who had the ability. And there was a lot of like, love what you do, but can't touch, can't touch you with a barge pole because you're, you're politically toxic for us. Yeah. And uh, so there was a lot of resentment around that. And, and I think we... We, we started believing, we started believing our tale of woe, which made mm. it worse, which made um, staying mentally fit and, and um, spiritually fit and able uh, even harder. And, uh, and you, you, you go to some dark places, but, you know, I think what saved us was the fact that there were two of us. And, yeah. um, you know, when, when one of us was really struggling, the other was there to just, okay, look, look, we just got one foot in front of the next, like, let's try this let's try that person let's you know we were building up uh, goodwill all over the place and and um, and i think we were lucky that we were also sort of multi-talented that we could pick up a lot of the you know a, a lot of the challenges or a lot of work that needed to be done um and, and run this thing leaner than anyone could imagine you know and, and mm-hmm. we've always people always like what how like how are you? Not this m- much bigger organization. Um, yeah. We didn't have offices before. Not having offices was cool, um, you know, because we couldn't afford it, <laughs> basically. Um, you great. know, the, uh, I spent the better part of ten years trying to get people into an office. You know, so yeah. like remote working, the flip was not a was not an issue for us. But it, it was, yeah, it was uh, it was really difficult. And I think that the, the the tough part was I especially had internalized this. Uh, thing of like it is so hard or is it ever going to come right and Mm. um, and that there was a lot of doom and gloom over the news industry even around the world people I mean the New York Times was in 2014 they wrote the innovation report which was uh, this raw honest assessment of what they needed to do if they were to survive and this was the New York Times you know Mm. so imagine if they were thinking like uh, how hard is this, you know, and, and lucky they've turned around and they've become the poster boy of, uh, of the news industry since then, because they implemented most of that report. Um, but at that time, the, the homepage numbers, their overall traffic numbers were dropping, like mm. in digital, like, you know, in 2013, it's unbelievable. So that was, yeah, it was, it was tough. And, uh, you know, and there was one time I, I, I actually said the words, I don't want to do this anymore um and uh, and all the other times was kind of like it was you know maybe in the back of your mind and like when is that breaking point going to come mm. um you know when is this risk and the stress worth it uh, you know where where when is it going to be worth it like how much more can we take and there was you know one time we had run out and and i you know being charged of the business side of things the fundraising the business plans the term sheets uh, all that stuff was, was my sort of uh, domain to take care of. And there was time when we, you know, we had another bailout coming and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, um, I I don't have anything left in me. I, there's, um, I can't go ahead and I, I can't ask for another bailout again. I just, I don't know if I believe anymore and um and, and to Branco's credit he um he said okay let me let me do this one you know and he did and we got it and <laughs> okay don't like, leave yeah.
0: me i'll do this one please don't leave me <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: and, and and i could see it and and i think that was uh probably the only time i think i've ever seen him like really worried was when i think yeah. he realized that this this could be it because uh we formed this really sort of solid partnership and um and i remember him getting the money to to get us over another payroll and i was like fuck like i actually it would have been easier if he didn't get it It and we could just put a line under this so that my life could move on i could go and do something else and uh, i could go and tell my wife it's finally over and we can start again you know but it just it was like oh fuck Fuck another one, right? Like, <laughs> so we get to live another fucking day. Okay. But I look back at that now and I realize um, there's no other way to to describe it other than the universe wanted us to continue. Okay. Um, okay. And there are other examples around, um, uh, dotted along the way, where I cannot explain anything other than the universe made conspired to keep us going and um uh, yeah it,
0: uh... i mean i know that feeling but the thing that i want to see is if we can get to is like what what are the things that lead you to those moments of this universe conspiring to keep you alive because i don't believe generally in things like luck or coincidence i believe that you and branco potentially worked hard enough for long enough that opportunity, you know, kind of like found you or something, is there anything you can learn about staying power when those universal moments just clicked into place? Like, is it tangible? Is there something, you know, that you could take away from that? Or do you genuinely just believe that you have no clue how you survived through those periods?
1: Um, You know, Nick, um, there's a couple of distinct phases of the Daily Maverick journey. And you can actually, if you plotted it out on, on a on a graph, you would be able to see those distinct phases kicking in. And um there are distinct phases in my personal development. Um my state of mind, my place in the world, my own self-awareness and personal development journey. And they mirror exactly those changes in the daily maverick journey and there was a there was a long period of there was a a lot of work that I had to do on myself and a lot of childhood stuff that I was carrying into adulthood and drove a lot of resentment and a lot of um, um, victimhood thinking Um, and once I'd done the work to kind of free myself of that and to help me uh, change my the stories I was telling myself and my outlook on the world um, that's when a lot of those universal bay lights started happening and wow. um, and and they were quite powerful moments for me to see because i don't think um, you know no one else was aware of them you know no one else was was could see the um, serendipity of, of those of those moments mm. and um, that for me was the lesson was like okay I had to free myself of this baggage and in some way um, I had to sort of wipe the the crap from my own life so that I could then take that into into my work life and then just things started happening because we started telling ourselves different stories, putting ourselves in, in position, positions of opportunity rather than Um, just believing that there was no way out of this, and uh, and that kind of kicked us off. And then there were like some just complete, complete random things that happened where you know, uh, we needed a bailout, and um, there was a, a specific random donation, rather large, that dropped in out of nowhere. Like, when I say To the amount of the life that was required, Um, like it was, you know, there were things like that that happened. That just so, um, yeah, you know, those were the 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 kind of uh, moments. Learning, you know, learning from that was kind of just um, uh, how the, the 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 personal life and the. Uh, outlook and the mentality and the just what's going on with the founders is just so critical to how that plays out to to the rest of the organization and and that for me was quite eye opening.
0: Yeah, I mean, thank you for highlighting this. It's such an overlooked part of being a business owner and an entrepreneur and a founder that the personal development part I believe is often more important than the business development part. Like you say, when you are in this dark hole mentally and emotionally, how do you possibly raise yourself up to make a sale, to be enthusiastic and to do this thing? It's the difficult part is that there's no badge for personal development. Um, You know, we just work and we just do. Like there's a badge for hitting revenue targets. There's a badge for growing your business, for having bigger headcount, and for getting bigger and bigger all the time. But there is no badge for being a better version of yourself but that's the work that actually makes the business side easier. And I mean, I'm so glad you brought this up, especially in the opening episode of the show because it is just so imperative and founders forget that you need to be okay before your business can be okay.
1: And um, the impact um, that founders have on the organization in terms of the culture, in terms of how it conducts itself, in terms of how it treats people, Um, it's outsized in terms of, you know, and and accentuated. And so um, if we're not conducting ourselves or thinking in the right way or doing or carrying ourselves in the right way, that's going to end up being part of the organization. And um, yeah, that's, it, it. it is often overlooked and it's not, you know, it's not a, you know, I don't know if there's too many business schools that you know, they, they incorporate that in terms of yeah. like what what the founders or CEOs or, or you know could and should be doing in terms of how their own personal wellness extends into the wellness of the organization.
0: Yeah, I mean, I learned pretty early on in my career that your team that you've hired, uh, if you've hired good people around you have much more EQ than you give them credit for. Um, I, much like you, had one of, in one of my startups, I hadn't paid myself a salary for six months. It was brutal. We had three months of runway. I was stressed and panicked. And I thought that nobody knew, um, knew quote unquote, except when I did eventually tell my team that, listen, we've got three months of runway. It's gonna be really tough. We might have to cut some people. They were like, yeah, we could tell. And I was like, my God, yeah, what an absolute waste of stress, you know, just be upfront with your smart people.
1: Well, I mean that, uh, you know, our, our recruitment, uh, uh, policy at one stage was bringing people on board and saying, well, look, listen, um, you're going to have to take a pay cut to work longer <laughs> hours to take on more <laughs> stress and more risk. And there's a pretty good chance. We might not be around in three months, but we can guarantee the, you know, the, the most rewarding time that you'll ever have. And, um, you know, we're building this thing. You know, come along and 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 you know, if you tell people that and they still want to come on board, then I think you get a certain kind of person. Yeah. And um, and there were also a lot of people who were like just done with being working in toxic work environments and yeah. newsrooms. And and you know, you can imagine half half the industry was just cut. And so um, people that come from really traumatic experiences, we were like, listen, we don't know where this thing's going or how it's going to survive, but we can just like, we're all in. And that's all we can promise. And um, and people came along with that.
0: Yeah, it's um it's frustrating, but a very commonly understood way to engage with journalists in this kind of era that we're in is often people. I'll say to them, uh, they'll say to me, "How do you get covered in media organizations?" And I'm like, "Well, you just contact them." because you've got half the amount of journalists trying to produce double the amount of work and they always need content ideas and it's indicative of the industry we're in. But for me, that's a nice segue into how did you solve this problem? Like you can't just have a money pit, right? You can't just have people throw money in and burn it and then you guys save the world forever. That's like, how did you actually fix this problem? Because I know you spent a lot of time doing research I mean, you and I met up maybe five years ago, give or take, and you just come back from visiting the New York times and a bunch of others, um, and a variety of newspapers to figure out how the hell they were all going to survive. So tell me what happened from there.
1: Yeah. It was part of that mindset change where, and it was that trip. It was exactly that trip, um, where I I still remember it was $6,400 to participate in, in the, in the tour. So there's a uh, this Institute uh, for Journalism, a nonprofit in, in the U.S. called the Pointer Institute. And uh, they organise these tours uh, um, to, you know, these huge uh, media organizations in the Eastern Seaboard of uh, of America. And you could pay to, to participate in the tour and go out and meet some uh, really interesting people and get an insight and an inside look into what they're busy with, get to ask, you know, their leaders, you know, questions, which was just an incredible opportunity. But... You know, living from month to month for you know the better part of eight years, um, spending that kind of money on 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 this trip was kind of like, uh, you know, like, do you re- <laughs> yeah, do you really want to do this? And it was kind of like you know, Branko was like, listen, you know, fuck, we worked like so hard. Um, if nothing else, you, you deserve did. it, you know. Mm. But um, go and find some inspiration, you know. And um and so went, and I went expecting to see our uh, perception of the doom and gloom in the industry. And I think this was in 2017 and um, went there and I noticed that all the organizations that we went to that were particularly upbeat about the future um, had made huge inroads um, into reader revenue, right. And, and had run and had put up their paywalls, were, you know, a million or a couple million uh, uh, subscribers, um, and and they were extremely upbeat, and they were launching new products, and um, you know, we spoke to the team that had just uh, launched the daily, and um, you know, and, and I could see the, the the organizations that had cracked this reader revenue that had started were the ones who were most uh, uh, you know optimistic, and so I came back from that, and obviously there were a lot of things going around, and I was like, wow, just people, they're all positive there, you know. I, we were just thinking negative, the end is nigh, kind of thing down here. And and I came back to Bronco and I said, listen, I, I've got a plan. You like, like we've got to crack this reader revenue thing. And he was like, you know, it's, you know, strong, Serbian accent, like well, we'll never put up a paywall. You know? And I said, we're not going to, I, because I knew he was going to say that. Yeah. Because our mission, and we'd realized that, you know, if we wanted to help change South Africa and for the better, we couldn't just serve the elite and put up a paywall. And have you know ten thousand people to support us, and, uh, and you know we'd be profitable, and you know we'd have a small profitable organization, but the country was going to just burn. Mm. And uh, and those were our options. Like right? it was put up a paywall and be profitable, um, or the country's fucked. Like there was like that's what we believe the the options were, and why we couldn't go that road. And so mm. around about that time, the, the first paper on membership in news had been published um, by two women that I had the pleasure of meeting uh, later on in my life, uh, Emily Goligoski and Elizabeth Hansen, who wrote the paper on um, audience engagement and uh, reader revenue that formed the basis of membership in news. It was the first sort of a paper on that and I was just like highlighting and highlighting and highlighting. and I knew that this model of 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 uh, reader revenue where we could uh, just ask people to join the cause and become mm. part of this and help keep us free for for others who can't afford to pay, was the way that 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 resonated with our vision. And our mission and uh, the needs of the country and where we were in our particular set of circumstances. You know, for people who aren't aware of it, South Africa has 40% unemployment, uh, 70% youth unemployment. So, you know, how can you in in a, in a country with those kinds of uh, challenges, um, you know, put up a, a paywall that that's going to cut out that many people from from uh, your journalism? And so I said, I knew you were going to say that. I've got a plan. And I've been studying this, and I think we can we can implement this. And you know, we were, you know, changing uh, CMSs uh, or planning to change CMSs. So we had a couple of months where we could do the designing, the testing, the hypothesis testing, and 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 put out some MVPs that were eventually going to lead to this pay what you want model of membership. Um, where we would create benefits for people to come and be part of this community and help uh, keep Daily Maverick journalism free for the entire country.
0: Just, um, just some lingo there, uh, CMS or content management system is such an imperative thing for an online news publication and shifting or changing them is like quite a monumental thing. So it was relatively good timing that you had to do this and you had a plan and it was like pause and possibly difficult, but really relevant work to do at that time, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you don't want to be changing CMSs and uh, too often. Like, uh, like if you can avoid, if I can avoid doing that again, I will gladly never <laughs> change. Like it, there has to, and there's always troubles. Like you, you, you know, you don't want to change hosting companies too often. You don't want to change your ad server too often, and you don't want to change your CMS uh, even you know less often than, than than those. So yeah, we had some some forced downtime while that was happening, yeah. and uh, that gave us opportunity to to put together the only business plan in my life that has actually achieved the numbers that ever worked is like and (laughs) you know in fact is actually better than the numbers that i put down but it's the only time i've ever done a business plan that's actually you know achieved what we put down in the forecast
0: okay so from a high level i understand what's coming but I want to just touch on the details of this for a second because as someone who's written and thrown out many business plans, um, and I don't really believe in them anymore. So you went to your co-founder and you said, "I've got this plan. We're going to put in your version of a paywall. We're going to test it out." Um, who else did you have to talk to to get buy-in from? If anybody like your team, your investors, your VCs. Was there a process of getting like the all okay, um, let's move and let's do this? Like, how do you move a ship that's already sailing?
1: Well, um, you know, f- for the better part of those eight years, until we figured out what sustainability looked like, it was very difficult for us to invest in uh, resources that weren't editorial. We, we just kind of realized that, uh, look, till we figure this out, the the best thing we can do is invest in the brand And investing Mm -hmm. in the brand means investing in the newsroom when everyone else is cutting. And that allowed us to compete with organizations. And also because we're digital, we didn't have like layers and layers of overheads, management and and offices and all sorts of other legacy costs. Um, Our output per person and the fact that, you know, our team works harder than already a hardworking bunch of people. Mm -hmm. um, You know, we were creating... Uh, for a long time already, we, we were putting out more original feature-length content than any publisher in the country, and, um, and 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 but we we just couldn't justify investing a lot in product and technology. We outsourced. I mean, the dirty secret of Daily Maverick as a digital organization is that the first time we had a full-time development resource uh, available to us was probably nine years after we started. Wow. Um, that is know, crazy. So that is crazy. yeah. And uh, and so we had like, an uh, we worked with an outsourced uh, operation, um, but even then it was like, you know, we couldn't afford a full-time, you know, the dev resource. And so we managed to do a lot with, uh, so when it came to convincing people, generally when Brank and I are, you know, thumbs up, then we, it was basically like, okay, fine, go make it happen. You know, and okay. so... Um, I that's when we hired our first product person um, to come on board and then it was a case of okay, help me design this thing and so the two of us worked on on this we designed it we went and visited um, Shipstead in in Scandinavia uh, we went to the Guardian we got half an hour with their membership team and uh, and we were able to get some calls with some you know other operators around the world and, um, and take sort of, this little uh, tactic and strategy from paywalls, and this one from, the, you know, full donation model, and this one from paywall model, and kind of like uh, build our own uh, membership plan.
0: And um, just give me a time frame from you visiting um, the point uh, thing, um, the six thousand four hundred dollar decision that you made to getting all of this V one up and running and test it.
1: Uh, so uh, I, I think it was in uh, November, it could have been around October 2017 was when I when I went on the went on the trip to New York. Um, May we were planning on putting out the the CMS. Uh, I think the the new we moved on to WordPress in 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 May, um, and then uh, we ran a donation voluntary donation MVP. and then August, 2018, we launched the membership program. So um, within a within a year of, of, uh, of, of, of basically coming back with that inspiration uh, and then giving ourselves the, the sort of the target that we were going to, within three years, try and get uh, a third of our revenue from philanthropy, a third of our revenue from commercial activities and a third of our revenue from readers, that was the, we then had this strategy of like, okay, that's what we need to get within three years' time.
0: So what do you attribute to that incredibly short product development cycle? I mean, from, hey, we were an ad-based business to, in 12 months later, we've launched all this shit, and like, it's amazing. How did you, like, you didn't even have a developer. How on earth did you manage that? Like, what does that even look like? like
1: desperation. What does that look like? Desperation. Desper- d- desperation. Desperation. <laughs> We'll get' <laughs> we'll get you over the line, uh, you know, and it was just it was kind of like it, it, it was finally, here's a model that that works that resonates with that uh, not only resonates with our vision and our mission, but recognizes that in a media organization, the newsroom is not a cost center. They are actually the revenue drivers for you. And this model, what a
0: great perspective shift, hey!
1: And, and in the past, you know, the newsroom has been this cost center that gives yeah. cut, 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 cut. As opposed <sighs> to like the better your newsroom, and the, and the, and the more experienced, and the the better the output of your journalism, the more likely you are to get people to come with you on this cause and this journey because they just there's a you know, and and shifting that sort of. Moving from a B 2 B operation to B 2 C, you know, model with this, uh, it just clicked, and it was kind of like it just like and that's what I said when we were doing when I was reading the paper and just highlighting all these passages. It was like yes, 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 and then I was just, you know, it, it was like you know, it was it was eight years of waiting for this to kind of uh, these pieces to to become available to us, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, this is such a good example of uh, one of my favorite essays from one of my favorite investors, Paul Graham, who's the founder of Y Combinator. And he wrote an essay many, many years ago called How Not to Die. And he basically talks about those who survive win. Like, that's it. That's the equation of startups, is if you survive long enough, eventually you'll find your audience, you'll find your product market fit, you'll find your revenue model, and you will survive and win. And what you and Bronco have done is such a good example of how not to die. So I imagine it was all like, click, we've launched this amazing, we're now rich and wealthy and everything could just carry on forever, right? Um, how did that launch actually go in 2018? And um, what happened afterwards?
1: So we, we did this big event uh, once a year that's called The Gathering, and over the, the course of 10 years, it kind of like, you know, there've been different themes, different focuses, and it's grown from like uh, 150 people event where we had no production, and I was, you know, putting tape on the microphone on the stage, and uh, <laughs> I remember the first the first one we did, uh, the, the aircon uh, at the theater that we had hired, or, you know, was given to us, um, you know, didn't work, and but the content was so great that people stayed the entire day. And that morphed and evolved into this event where we would get a thousand people at the, you know, the Cape town convention center. Mm -hmm. And that year after the Gupta leaks, which was this massive investigation that we're involved in that helped change the political uh, landscape of this country. um, It was around the media, but we called it the media gathering. It was, we interviewed investigative journalists. We had whistleblowers. um, We, um, you know it, it was just themed around the, the importance of the media and, and what we needed to do and just before the lunchtime break um and that morning we had we, we'd finished the the, the site at seven thirty. uh we finished the the landing page for the membership program to go live and uh, just before lunch I, I stood up in front of a thousand people by myself, with a spot with a spotlight on me, I have a, a, an intense fear of public speaking. I have to do a lot of work just to be able to get up on stage. Uh, and, and that's generally with other panelists or, you know, where I'm not standing there by myself. And I had to, what uh, um, I, I gave what uh, our now manager of membership calls my Obama moment, where I stood up in front of people and, and a thousand people and said, like, we can't do this anymore. We need you to come and join us. Um, we're committed to keep doing what we're doing, but we we, we can't do this by ourselves anymore. And um, you know, and and, uh, and you can choose. You can choose how much you want to contribute. Um, but if you know, and then we didn't. we had that message. And then we also said, but if you sign up today, we've got daily Maverick hoodies and tote bags and stuff. And and it was just before the lunch break, so people were heading out, and we had the sign up stall just on the other side and, uh, and yeah, 20% of the people in the audience signed up on that day. Um, so 200 people signed up and we were off to the races and,
0: um, I'm proud to say at that point that I got up from my chair, walked and still have my daily Maverick hoodie and I'm still a subscriber. So your speech clearly worked.
1: Yeah, and um, but we had like a tech issue after that, and we, we would, there was two weeks where we couldn't take any new signups. But um, I also
0: remember writing my subscription down. Like, here's my email address. You yeah. can bill me. Don't worry. I, I physically written no like old school yeah. stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and there's this thing where just you know, like you're getting product market fit despite your product yeah. or yeah, like exactly. some of your some exactly. of your tech. That's when you know you you got something. And but yeah. we were then, uh, and then it was a case of just okay. Uh, we've already got an audience. We, we know where our most loyal and engaged readers are. They come to us from our newsletters, which we'd invested in uh, over the better part of a decade, mm. uh, our homepage, desktop users. And so it was kind of like, okay, where are these people coming from? How many people are converting? What mes- testing messages, A-B testing messages, um, reading the research, looking at best practice, and just this continuous, always on process of mm-hmm. learning, uh, of learning about, you know, what kind of language and, but making sure that it, at, at all times, uh, never drifted from, uh, the values, uh, the vision, the mission. So it's cancel anytime you want. Um, it's choose the amount of your, uh, your contribution. Um, it's here, are these are benefits. And we just kept adding new benefits that were, that were linked to the daily mapping experience. And then, communicating back to people and saying, look, we, yes, we've gotten traction with this. This is like changed the lives, recurring revenue for the first time ever. And we then took that and then we, we, we could make a call. It's like, okay, well, are we going to be profitable now? And we are like, well, why would you want to be profitable? We're like, that's, that's for losers. You know, um, you know, finan- you don't want a financial heart attack at the end of each month. Why? Like, how would you live without that? Right. Um, but no, it was, it was, um, you know, the mission was was far from from achieved or, or over. And so any uh, um, opportunity to grow that we had from this was reinvested into the newsroom because, um, you know, the, the, the needs of the country and the needs of society um, uh, needed us to be bigger and stronger. And also for our own protection, we needed to be bigger and stronger because the political risks, uh, the legal risks, and the, you know, Um, you know, the the best defense against that was was to become bigger, better and stronger. And so we've continued to invest in in our newsroom and and to our products and our membership team and our product and technology team. And I look at the New York Times, 1700 journalists with 700 people in product and technology, you know, so that ratio of like almost like two journals to one product and tech person is like, mm. okay, I think we're at like one in sixty. So we've got a bit of work to do on that on that uh, on that front. And so, you know, mm. we're starting to invest in 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 our platform and product and tech. And you know, we, we know that our future um is reliant on um on commercial efforts and and our membership program, you know, growing to five five X of where it is now.
0: Yeah, I think. An observation that I want to make uh, that I think is important that I've struggled with as an entrepreneur, and I'm sure many other people out there are, is what you did with Branko was the hard work upfront to build a valuable product, but then you still had to continue doing the hard work to find a model that resonated with your mission and your vision and the practical day-to-day of your business. You didn't just go, well, yeah, paywalls are a thing. Everybody else is doing it. Here's a paywall. Screw it. That's the way, and that's the end of it you had to actually retrofit all these different pieces from all these different places. I think you probably spent like a year thinking about how does this all fit together and work for us as a business? And there's so many times that I see entrepreneurs try to pull together a solution off the wall and go, oh, well, this worked for so-and-so, so it's definitely gonna work for me and then mimic what they did. But it doesn't work that way. Context is everything when it comes to your business and the way you wanna solve problems
1: and 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 also the fact that in all these decisions um you know we've we've um you know profit wasn't the the motive in, in in all of this it was like yes it ultimately would be great to have it as a successful byproduct of of what we're doing but if we're not thinking about putting you know uh, the audience and needs of the audience first then we're just going to you know we're, we're going to uh, take advantage of them or we're just doing something for make you know to make money which is not a well what's a you know there's not a great reason to do something there are right?
0: also easier ways to make money than to start a media publication
1: yeah <laughs> no, absolutely and so
0: that's that's key in in all of our decisions and
1: and mm-hmm. we try and also when we think about where we expand to what kind of journalism we expand into what you know you mentioned some of the things that we that we're doing um in you know, feature film documentaries you know we've done uh, we've done one um it got to Sundance, we're on our second and third uh, wow. documentary and docuseries now. Um, but all of that is aligns with the vision and the mission of the organization. We're just telling stories and creating journalism in in, in a in a different way um that, that expands on that. But also when we choose a a product or revenue channel to go into, we also kind of think, well, you know, does the world need this? Um, are we good at it? Do we have the skills? um and you know d- you know do we do we have a do we have a uh, how are we going to make it work how are we going to get it funded and and so we kind of think about all those things as well kind of like well mm. you know before we jump into it you know this this daily maverick soap on a rope you know th- you know should we do it and like well, yeah does it fit with no. our vision? No, not really. Yeah. Um, you know, does the world need another soap on the rope manufacturer? No. So it, it, those kind of frameworks help us sort of keep us in check, you know, and, and um, you know, just keep us on the sort of like keep it all kind of aligned and congruent with with what we're trying to achieve.
0: All of these cool new things that um, you're expanding into, um, one of which I think is worth highlighting, considering you started as a magazine from Branco back in the day and shifted into digital only, and then you launched a newspaper after all of that, which is absolutely batshit crazy for an online publication to launch a newspaper in 2020. But my question is, were all of these cool, fun things, um, interesting things and necessary things only possible because of the new reader revenue you were getting,
1: yeah, absolutely. That that revenue, wow. as it was growing, was giving us the the support base from which we could get predictable revenue coming in, and 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 became meaningful revenue quite quickly. And um, how quickly? When
0: you say quite quickly, like from launch in October, how was it meaningful thereafter? Like how quickly?
1: So to, to, to put this into context, by the time, from, before we launched the membership program and, and three years later, our, our revenue had um, almost tripled
0: wow. in
1: total. And, and um, by that time, membership had become a third of our revenue. You know, that had grown so much and it become an element. And so, and and then getting it on a recurring basis, you know, it's like every Monday, the account gets sweeped from our payment gateway and it comes Mm -hmm. in and just, you know, just having like, it's life changing. Like, I can't tell you, um, it is one of the, it is you know up there with my children's birth uh every monday when (laughs) that's like only a
0: founder could say (laughs) Um, and and that kind of gave us yeah they give us
1: they give us the the confidence to know that we could plan better we we knew the areas Mm. we wanted to expand into we knew the important areas of journalism, and then building this more holistic broad uh you know broader relevance uh high quality uh, media organization and um Yeah. And, and that, so we had this model and this framework that we could use to, to kind of keep growing.
0: Okay. So as we close off, I'm interested in how this shift has affected your personal life and you know, how you run the business now. And my thoughts uh, stems from this place where you chose to fund your business over your kids schooling. And you were in this dark, deeply depressive space business-wise. How's all of this shifted and how are you going to maintain that now?
1: Yeah, so you know the organisation is is very different uh, now than to those dark days. And look, the financial stresses uh, are still there because um, we've chosen to invest in growth, and growth is um, you know is cash hungry, right? And uh, you know we're still growing, we still are not profitable, but we've got um, you know more than a hundred uh, permanently employed people, um, f- starting out from five. Um, And that's in an industry that's lost 50% of its workforce. So to, to, to have that kind of, you know, trend, you know, we've had to, and so we now have a big, scary payroll. That's, you know, big and scarier before, but we know we've been down this road um, many times. We have a plan, but we also know, and this is the thing that we're grappling with now is we've been here 12 years. We've been doing this for 12 years. We're still founder led after 12 years. Um, It's kind of, We can still keep check on the culture and that the vision and mission permeates, but we have to start thinking about how our jobs have changed, our roles have changed, and um, how we need to free ourselves from the weeds of the day-to-day operations, and that we have to start playing mentor, coach, Mm -hmm. uh, directional roles, and how how do we envisage this place running if we're not here? And what do we need to do in order to make sure that it, it will still be a vision and mission-driven organization, even if we're not here? And so, how do we how do we build that, bake that into the culture now, while we still have the opportunity to influence it, um, so that when the inevitable um, infiltration of you know, corporate types or politically compromised types make it into leadership positions in the organization, that the the muscle is still quite strong and knows that this is how we do it. So we focus, we're, we're changing a lot now in terms of like how we try and think about strategy and um, goals and measuring success and staying true to the vision, not damaging the culture while you're doing all this and giving people the, the clarity and the confidence and the congruency that their day-to-day work ties up into the vision and mission of the organization and the teams and the strategies of, of their team and that they know, okay, this is why I'm doing this piece of work today because it ties into all these things and this is how it affects um, you know, uh, uh, society and how it's gonna benefit people. And so we're doing a lot of that work now and that work is about how do we set this up so that uh, we're not like so many other organizations that once the founders leave, you can basically just pull the pull the, the ripcord out from the organization and it just collapses like a house of cards. And so we, we're quite wary of that. Uh, and that's what we're focusing a lot at the moment. And I think with that, you, you know, we have this underlying thing. It's like, you know, just you know, in all of this time, be kind, right? Because there's a lot of shit in the world. People are suffering a lot. Um, there's a lot of mental health issues and anxieties and fears and challenges going on. And so how can we create the kind of workplace that, um, you know, people are, are, are proud and happy to, to, to rock up to and do their thing every day under a lot of stress? And so, a lot. You know, we're consumed by a lot of that at the moment.
0: And then I think my last question is possibly more personal than you want to go, but in terms of personal development, like where did you start? Where would you suggest or advise other founders start with their own personal development journeys? Because I'm certain that there are a lot of people out there who just aren't doing it. They they just they just not, and they don't even know what they don't know, and that they need to start to do the work. So where did you kick off, and where would you suggest that other people start?
1: So I guess in in, in a way I was either lucky or unlucky that um, you know the, the the baggage and the shit from my childhood um, you know got to a point where I. I had to do something, you know, okay. combined with the stresses of, of the workplace that, and mm. the, the, you know, the, the environment that I was telling you about, you know, all that stuff sort of came to a head. And my relationship with my wife was, was at a, was in a terrible place. And, you know, and she was also like, you know, you got to sort your shit out mm. um, kind of, kind of moment. Um, and, and I realized that it, there were a lot of changes. And, and then once that started, I just kind of, you know, saw okay there's there's a lot of work here that, that needs to happen so i guess in a way i was kind of pushed into it mm. um did you seek
0: professional like did you actually get yeah, professional absolutely. help okay
1: absolutely so years years of therapy uh lots of reading uh support group stuff um like all that stuff was was uh was yeah. w- was important and gave me this sort of like framework to live my life in a better way. But then I, I quickly started seeing how those were so interchangeable and in how we wanted the workplace to function That's and amazing. how I wanted to deal with people in the workplace. And mm-hmm. for the first time in my life, you know, a lot of the skills um, and just how to be a, a human, a decent human, I, I you know, uh, I grew up in a, a very traumatic household. So all those things, you know, that were normal uh, for a lot of other people, weren't normal. I normalized a lot of bad behavior, mm. and so uh, you know those things I could take into my interactions with 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 people that I was working with, and you know that helped create the kind of culture that that we wanted to have. Yeah, and so yeah, and, and then um, when COVID hit, we um, we also recognized that the impact that it was going to have very quickly, and we we're really in a highly stressful uh, industry. And uh, we put a, um, a counselor on retainer and said, look, um, wow. we're making the counselor available to anyone in the organization. We're picking up the tab. And, um, you know, this was someone who had a wide range of experience, but to pick the right person, mm. experience in, in trauma counseling, addiction counseling, um, you know, had been through a whole lot of that stuff himself. And, um, you know, after a couple of, of, of sessions with a couple of people, different people, we got the thumbs up and said, okay, no, he's great. And then made him available. And, and then at every opportunity, every piece of communication that goes out from us as, as the as a leadership is to try and destigmatize uh, mental health, to make it okay, to so say important. this is coming. Um, we're picking up the tab, go ahead and make use of it. And even now, like a year later... We're still pushing that, and and then creating opportunities for him to come in and and have sessions on boundaries, on communication, Mm. on wellness. Um, Mm. Whenever we see something coming up from our interactions with people that we want to sort of, you know, we we then you know get him to kind of uh, you know put something together, and and that um, has made a huge impact. I think a third of our organisation have made use of 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 him in that time, Um, probably another third that should have um, as well. Um, and it's made a huge difference to just helping us get through the, what was a, a, a crazy time, you know, uh, uh yeah. you know, um, for a lot of us.
0: Wow, Stilly! what a ride. Um, I'm super proud to be a part of it, even a small part as a Maverick Insider. Uh, So now if there's anything in closing you'd like to say, go ahead. Otherwise, just tell people where they can find you, find the Daily Maverick. um, And if you'd like to direct them anywhere, go for it.
1: Yeah, so dailymaverick.co.za, that's uh, that's where we do our thing. Um, All our journalism goes out into the world. Um, If you are able to... Uh, read us for the first time or you just want to support us uh, for a couple of dollars or a couple of euros from wherever you are in the world, that's going to go a long way to, um, our, you know, helping us on our, on our mission um, to serving South Africa and serving the South African public with our journalism, keeping it free for everyone. And uh, yeah, it was it was great chatting to you, Nick. Thank you for, you know, this look back at some of the, the dark times, but also that, um, you know, there, there can be, Um, a light at the end of the tunnel that isn't an oncoming train
0: yeah wow I'm really happy to hear that for the Daily Maverick it's not over until it's over